Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. Glad that you guys are here on this really super rainy day, uh, but a great Valentine's Day. And I want to thank you, for those of you who are here in the house, thank you guys so much for being a part and being here. A great crowd, robust crowd. And, um, and I want to thank those of you who are joining online. Why don't we give it up for those who are joining online this morning. Thank you guys for joining online. And for those who are out in the backstage patio, I'm just kidding, they're not there today. I promise you they're not there today. Oh man, uh, it's Valentine's Day, and uh, Valentine's Day, as Cynthia mentioned, um, I, I learned very early on, we've been married for uh, 26 years this coming summer, and I learned very early on that it is her favorite uh, day, her favorite holiday, and so uh, I learned uh, that it is her favorite holiday because, as she said, she doesn't have to work except for every once in a while, like today. Um, so <laughs> it, is, it is an unusual holiday. It is um, a holiday that is, uh, you know, not from the Bible, clearly, uh, but the theme of Valentine's Day is, of course, love. And love is the foundation of everything in Scripture, isn't it? It's the foundation of everything in Scripture. It's the foundation of what God did by sending His Son uh, on the cross to die for the world, to give us the eternal life that we just sang about. And so in some ways, it gives us an opportunity to focus on and check our hearts in terms of how do we love. And in this series called Different, I think it's a great time for us to do that. It just really kind of comes at the right time for us to really just check and see how we're doing on how we love those who are so different than us. Now, um, we have Matt Seidel is on staff, and he is uh, famous for saying fun facts. So I'm going to give you a couple fun facts about Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, uh, you know, like I said, it doesn't have any biblical straight up biblical significance, but the church, the Catholic church, recognizes a few different saints called Valentine or Valentinus, um, all of whom were martyred. Happy Valentine's Day. So uh, anyway, think about that. All right, so one is uh, the legend of Valentine, who was a priest. He served during the third century of Rome uh, when Emperor Claudius II decided that single men would make the greatest warriors and soldiers. So he had a law that said that the single men uh, had to be uh, they, they, or the, the soldiers had to be single. And so uh, Valentine uh, decided he, he was uh, a part of the church, and he decided that that was an unjust or an unjust uh, rule or law, and so secretly he would marry many of these soldiers. And that's why he was martyred, by the way. So anyway, another one, uh, another legend, if you will, of the church is that, uh, that uh, St. Valentine, uh, who's the true namesake of, this, uh, of the holiday, and that he was beheaded because of his, uh, of, of his dedication um, to the church, and that was a problem with the emperor of that day. And so he was also, uh, he was also martyred. But there's one that I love, and this is the one that I love the most. All right, so there's one legend that comes from the church that says that an imprisoned Valentine actually sent the very first Valentine card to someone that he had fallen in love with, a, a younger uh, person, younger woman, who was probably the jailer. He was in jail, and it was probably the jailer's daughter who he sent the Valentine card to, and he sent it to her, and he said that uh, this is from your Valentine. 
And so we get today from your Valentine. And so that's where we get the phrase from. And I love those legends. We don't know 100% if those things are true. So, But just a little fun fact, as Matt Sedell is so often uh, known in our world for, for uh, telling us a little fun fact. Now, how in the world do we take this idea of Valentine's Day and relate it to what we're talking about? And that is differences in the church. How in the world do we take this idea of Valentine's Day and relate it to the differences that we have in the church? We started this series a few weeks ago called Different. And we really began with two different premises and and really kind of drew a couple different conclusions over the past two weeks. And this week we're turning a little bit of the corner on this. Now, here are some of the premises that we uh, came up with in the first week. The first one is that we all are created by God with differences. So therefore, we are going to be different, and we are going to have differences. We're going to have different opinions from each other. We're going to have different thoughts from each other. We might have different uh, politics. Have you seen that before in the church from each other? We're going to have different thoughts about things. And so that's because God created us uniquely with differences. The problem that arises is when there's a tension within the church and attention among believers that we take those differences and they're unresolved and it becomes discord. And discord, if it's unresolved for too long, ends up in division. And so the differences that God created us with can very, very slowly over time become divisions in the church. And divisions in the church actually keeps us off Mission. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The second premise that we had that we came up with is that the church is to pursue unity and not division. That that's one of the goals of the church. It's a stated goal by the Apostle Paul that the church is to pursue unity. Are you with me this morning yet? That we are to pursue unity. Now, based on those two premises, we came up with a couple conclusions so far. Here's what we came up with. First of all, the first conclusion is that our mission is vitally important. And we concluded that we as the church, we who are Christ followers, are are united when we use our uniquenesses to benefit the church and to further the kingdom of God. When we are, as a group of people, on mission, we are unified. And it's a cyclical thing because the mission can unify us and we can help unify each other and the church when we are on that mission. And last week we talked more about the message and how the message of Christ followers so often is, is one of judgment and even kind of, kind of fades into a, a message of hate because we feel like we are so right about things and we only have to be right about one thing and that's the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified. That's the only thing that we absolutely, at the end of the day, have to be right about. And so we came to the conclusion that for the Christ follower, the overwhelming and primary message of our lives is Jesus. Now, the current mission, and so we talked about mission and message in weeks one and two. The current mission and message of the church is getting pulled apart, I believe, by This idea that we don't understand what love is, that we don't quite understand what God was fully doing when he sent Jesus into this world, what he was fully doing from the beginning of time. And the fact is, is that God was at work redeeming mankind all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. 
from the Old Testament all the way through now today. And if we are on mission and if we are on message, he can do amazing things with our differences. It's when we're not that we have problems. And it's when we're not that ultimately we have division inside the church that leaks to the outside of the church. Today, I want to lay down a different premise, and that is, is that possibly, possibly part of the reason that we have so much division among us and, and separation with the world and the world doesn't respect us is because we have lost our first love. That we as Christ followers have allowed the, the tyranny, the urgent, and the, the things of this world to kind of pull us away from that first love that we should have a love of God. See, when we depart from our mission and our message, I think what it reveals is, is that we do have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. And everyone knows in our physical life and in our spiritual life, if we have a heart problem, we're not going to make it if it's left unresolved. It's not gonna, we're not going to make it if we just leave it up to chance to heal. We have to be intentional and we have to be wise and we have to be smart when we realize that we have a heart problem. You see, when the church drifts from its mission and message, capital C church and each individual Christian, like the organization of the church and each one of us, when we drift, I believe it reveals that there might be a heart issue, that we might have lost our first love. See, divisions are ultimately the result of a heart problem. Divisions are ultimately the result of a heart problem. Now, there's this man by the name of John, and uh, he had written the book of John, the gospel of John, that we so often reference. It begins with talking about how Jesus was the word, and it's just filled with, with so much of our doctrine and what we believe, our theology about, about God and Jesus and heaven and hell and all those things. He wrote it from this place called Ephesus, and there were Christians there. It was the church in Ephesus. And then if you fast forward in John's life, right before his death, he's exiled on this island called Patmos. And he's writing a, another letter. He's writing what became the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And right out of the gates, he addresses seven churches. And it's such an interesting thing when you look at Revelation and you study these seven churches. There were uh, like three or four of them that were bad churches, one or two or maybe three of them that were good, and some that were a little bit good and a little bit bad. And it represents three things. Number one, it represents our heart, where we are with God. It represents those specific churches at that time, but it also re represents specific periods of time throughout the course of church and human history. And I'm not going to dive into all of that today, but I want you to read the letter that John writes to this church that he must have had a lot of admiration for because it's where he wrote his gospel, Ephesus. And I want you to see what he writes here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. Check this out. He says, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them 
to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right, so, so far, this word that comes from God through John is essentially saying to the church in Ephesus, there are certain things that you have done incredibly well, and I'll go into those in a minute. But he says this in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And then in verse 5, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. And I want you to pay particular attention to the word fallen for a moment, because I'm going to come back to that. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and he says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, Revelation is often a very difficult book to understand. And I think if we understand it, so a lot of times when we study the book of Revelation, which this is not a series in studying the book of Revelation, but when we do, we view it through the lens of end times, right? That's kind of naturally what we do. And it certainly has a lot to say about it. But it is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of who Jesus is and ultimately what he's going to do in the end of the age. But Paul, but Paul, John begins there on the island of Patmos by writing these seven very short letters to the churches, which by the way, when they were distributed to those different churches, there were actually churches like Ephesus and Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis and these other churches that he writes to. The letters were carried around to all the churches and they were read to all the churches. So like one church could hear what God was slapping the other church's hands for, Right. It'd be an interesting thing today, wouldn't it? Like, oh man, we're airing our dirty laundry to everyone here, but I think there's a lesson that we can each learn from all of the churches. And the church in Ephesus, John essentially says, you've done a great job on correcting some of the wrong theology that you had. You've done a great job of, with your mind, making sure that you know what you believe. And I want to applaud you for that. And you've done a good job of kind of reversing because in Ephesus there was this great wonder of the world, this temple to Diana, and, and it was like a, 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 a um, you know, something that people came there and, and they, they, uh, they believed and, and uh, they, they worshipped and they loved a different God than the one true God, and they dismantled all of that and they statedly chose to worship the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what he says here in verse 5, or in verse 4, he says, This I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. He says, you've done a lot of great things, but at the end of the day, you didn't love. At the end of the day, you had all of this right, but you had this wrong. G. Campbell Morgan said that no amount of activity in the king's service 
will ever make up for the neglect of the king. No amount of activity in the king's service will make up for the neglect of the king. I think it's obvious when we as Christ followers um, begin to idolize and worship the things of the world. And certainly John writes those letters to certain churches there among the seven. They began to worship the things of the world. But I think a little more innocuous and a little more, um, you know, kind of hidden and, and, and something that causes us to, to slowly fade away from our love of God is that we replace the love of God with the love of the things of God. Are you with me? Like we begin to love what we perceive or what we believe or what we're told or what the church culture or the whatever culture tells us are the things of God, but we don't love God himself. And one of those things is worship of the one true God, and the other, quite candidly, is idolatry. It's idolatry. And I think that part of the reason why we have so many differences among us in the capital C church is because we have fallen away from the love of the one true God, and we've fallen into love with the things of God, which are not bad, which are actually helpful and beneficial to our spiritual growth, but we replace our deep desire for him with some of the things of him. That's what Paul, I believe, is saying to the church is you love the things of me. You love the foundational things of me, but you have lost love for me. Your heart is unhealthy. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. It creates idols all the time. And I think one of the indicators of a heart problem is when we love the things of God more than we love God. And it's a real temptation inside the walls of the church. It's a real temptation for Christ followers to worship some of those things that are good and beneficial. And then what happens is, is we move away from a love of God and we worship those things that are good and beneficial instead of God. And then slowly over time, we begin to love the things of the world. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves far, far away from God. We don't know where to go. And so there's a warning here. One of the indicators of a heart problem is when we fall in love with the things of God more than God. We start off in our journey with God by saying, I love God, and because I love God, I value this, whatever it is. And over time, we find ourselves saying, you know what? I love this, whatever it is, because I value God. And church, when we buy into that mentality, when we slowly slip into that mentality of loving certain things that are good and beneficial, but we love them more than God, when we buy into that mentality, we are on a slippery slope to idolatry. We're on a slippery slope to buying in to the latest Christian fad. We're buying into a certain political philosophy that we've been told is Christian. 
or a certain person that we believe that we've been told is Christian. We bite hook, line, and sinker because we have departed from our first love. We have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. There were a couple times throughout Scripture that the people of God began to love the things of God more than him. There's this great example in David's life. David, who was a man after God's own heart, who made uh, as, as many terrible mistakes in his life as he had victories, who he you know, was a man that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but if you look at his life, it was a hot mess sometimes. There's this great example of him falling in love with the things of God more than God himself. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 5 through 7. I want you to check this out. Now, first of all, in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 4, we see, uh, we see David who um, is desiring to build the temple for God. And he wants it to be ordained with everything that is beautiful and expensive and ornate. And he wants it to be the greatest thing because of his love for God. But he began to misplace the two, the things of God and his love for God. 2 Samuel 7, 5 through 7, check this out. Go and tell my servant David... God says to Nathan, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. This is when God, the presence of God was in a tabernacle. And and God is essentially saying to Nathan, go tell David, he does not need to build this grand temple for me. I'm doing amazing work and I've been dwelling in a tent says, in all places where I have moved with all of the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, David was interested in building God a house, but God was interested and had other plans for David. David was focused on the physical I mean, yeah, David was focused on the physical, the things that you saw, the things that you could perceive. God wanted David to be focused on the spiritual. He wanted him to be focused on the heart. David had physical plans for God, and God had spiritual plans for David. See, David began to flip-flop those things. He was falling in love with the things of God, not God himself. Fast forward to the New Testament, and there's this great, like, just real quick example of the same thing, and it has to do with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, Jesus had an interesting relationship with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were religious leaders of the day, and, and they always challenged Jesus on the appearance of things, right? They were the ones that wanted to go pray in public so people would hear them, and Jesus said, no, go into your closet and pray in private. Like, they always wanted to make a big deal about things. We would call them drama kings, all right, today. Like, they would be full of drama. Jesus said, no, nah, that's not what it's about. And there's this great example of Jesus going back and forth with the religious leaders of the day, and John 2.19 records Jesus answering them, saying, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. You see, they, they were talking about him building a temple, and, and essentially they hadn't learned the lesson that David had learned, that God's not as interested in the things that are physical. He's interested in our hearts. 
And sometimes we confuse those two things and we begin to love the things of the world and the things of God rather than God himself. And church, I just want to stop here. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. Part of the reason that we are so divided Part of the reason that the world looks at the church and goes, I don't know if I want the God of the church because I don't want to be near the people of the church. The reason that happens, the reason that that exists is because you and I, we have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. We've begun to lose our first love. We've forgotten how incredibly amazing It is to fall in love with Jesus. I want you to remember for a moment, maybe those first few days or weeks after you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you remember that time? Some of you are like, Todd, that's a long time ago. I barely remember that time. I'm right there with you. But I want you to to do your best to try to remember that time. Do you remember how excited you were about Jesus? I remember it, man. When I was about 16, 15, 16 years old, God began to do a work when I was like 12, 13 years old, and I wasn't totally listening. And then 15 and 16 years old, man, I like committed my life to him, turned my life over to him, like really got serious about my walk with God. And I was so passionate about his word. I was so excited about diving in to to his letter to us on how to live life. I was so excited about finding out what it meant to serve him with my life. And over time, I let that fade. Just like we do with our love, right? Just like we do as humans with our significant others. Over time, we let it fade. We do the same thing with God. If we are going to really pursue unity, if we as the church are going to be the leaders in pursuing unity in the world, helping bring together the world and people with all of these differences and wild different ideas and politics and backgrounds, we are going to have to allow our hearts to be healed. And that means getting back our first love. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says in verse 5, it says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And I say these words that I commend you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Here's a, a whole another message, but it, it's important for us to know. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Jesus repeated this in Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 40. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these 
two commandments depend all the law and prophets? Jesus answered that question when he was asked, what is the greatest law to live by? He said, love God and love people. The problem is, is that we struggle to love people when we first don't love God. The, the world tells us today, the world speaks a lot today about loving ourselves. You know, the Bible does too. The Bible talks a lot about that as well. It talks about how we should be good stewards of the body, that we are the temple of the Most High God, that now he doesn't live in a tabernacle or a tent, but he dwells inside of us. We got to take care of this body that he's given us. Admittedly, sometimes I don't do that too well, especially in Valentine's Day when there's chocolate everywhere in my house that I put there. <laughs> the Bible talks a lot about that. The world talks a lot about that. But listen, Christ follower, I want you to hear this. You can't love yourself until you first love God. And you certainly can't love others until you first love God. Until he is the number one thing that is the desire of your heart, even more than the things that we think are of God, that are so good and so valuable. If we love anything more than him, or anyone more than him, or any philosophy more than his word to us, his gospel message to us. If we love anything at all above God, it's a step towards idolatry and not worship of the one true God. We can even get wrapped up in all the things that we do for God and trick ourselves into believing that we've done a good job, that we're owed a little pat on the back, or as my friend says, man, don't mess up your shoulder patting yourself on the back. I do it. I think we so easily do it. We get wrapped up into what we've done for God and the things of God. And Matthew 9, I love this passage, and here's where we'll end today. I love this. Jesus Verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus passed on from here. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, follow me. Matthew, he rose, and he followed Jesus. By the way, the, the series The Chosen has a great depiction of Matthew. I absolutely love it, and if you're not watching The Chosen, I highly recommend it. Jesus says, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I want to pause here for a second. The disciples who were, um, you know, men who chose to follow Jesus, they were kind of all aligned. They were all different. They all had their flaws. They all had their great aspects and, you know, the things that they were good at. But they were pretty much well aligned, except for Matthew, because Matthew was a tax collector. And in that day and age, tax collectors were the worst of the worst of society. Not so anymore, right? Uh, but in that day and age, 
They were the worst of the worst of society because they would skim off the top. And they would ask for more than was needed. And they would take personal money. And so I'm sure that Jesus caused a lot of problems when he looked at a guy like Matthew and said, come and follow me. That was just a little side note. And as Matt here says, fun fact. All right, so verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, how does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he said this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus, when he was saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, was repeating from the prophet Hosea that told the nation of Israel the same thing. And in some of your translations, it might even say love instead of mercy. Because those two words there can be interchanged. And here's the point. Jesus in this passage is really saying two things. He's correcting the religious leaders, but he's also communicating to his followers. He wants to make sure that they understand the priority of love. How many times do we hear, well, so-and-so sacrificed for God. What an amazing person they are. You know what Jesus would say? I desire love, mercy, more than sacrifice. I care more about love. I care more about you being merciful than I do you sacrificing. He wants them and he wants us to understand that there is a difference and that we who are his followers should desire to love people and have mercy on people more than we desire sacrifice. More than we have that thing that we are so proud of that we've done for God or sacrificed for him. He desires us to love. He says, why? Why would a doctor go to someone who's well? I think Jesus in today's day and age would say, why would you take the vaccine to those who are healthy? Why would you give the COVID vaccine to those who are healthy and not to those who are sick or vulnerable? I think you might make that comparison today. He came to love those who are sick. He came to bring mercy and love. And church, if we are going to close the gap on the differences here internally, if we are going to close the gap on the difference that the world sees when they view the church, and I'm talking about on a thousand different levels if we're going to close the gap on those divisions, we are going to come around the idea of love and bringing the message to those who actually need it. And that happens when our heart's desire is God first. See, when we fall in love with God, we gain once again the capacity to love people who are different from us. By the way, just like Jesus did, just like Jesus did. Church, there is a direct correlation between the vertical love that we have and the desire of our heart for him and how well we love each other, especially those people who are wildly different from us. If we're going to close that gap 
If we are gonna be the kind of church that speaks unity and mercy and love, we are gonna follow the example of Jesus. And you saw it on that opening video as it ended. The words of Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, when he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It is his love that is that sacrifice. And it should be ours. But today I want to ask you, how's your heart? How's your heart? What is the desire of your heart? At the end of the day, what do you want most? What do you desire most? Is he even in the mix? Is it all about you? Is it all about your thing? Or is it truly all about him? Unless you think that I'm standing on my high horse up here preaching to you, those of you who are at home or you are in this room, I have to ask those questions every single day of my life too. This is something that we all from time to time struggle with. What captures your heart's attention? What is the desire of your heart? Let it be, church, that we are about loving him first and loving others second. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, for the mercy that you extend to us, for the love that you have for us. God, I thank you that as different as we are from you, that in the depths of our sin and rebellion and rejection of you, you chose love. You chose to love us. And God, I pray that you would help each one of us who call ourselves Christ followers to check our heart, to check the desire of our heart. That we would allow you to inspect what's at the center of our ambition. God, I pray that you would do a work, that your Holy Spirit would begin a work that starts with me and extends to Hilton Head Island Community Church. God, that we would return to our first love. And in our effort to do good and to sacrifice and to be about those good things that are of you, Father God, I pray that we would not forsake our first love. That we wouldn't fall just like the Ephesians in our effort to do good and to be good and to sacrifice. God, I pray that we wouldn't fall from our first love. Father, I pray for those who are listening at home or those who are in this room who have maybe allowed that love to fade. God, I pray that you would just be with them right now, God, that you would reignite that. Father, I pray that that flame would, would begin to, to rekindle. God, that something that's happening, even maybe right now, that your Holy Spirit is reaching out to them, touching their hearts, reminding them of what you did for them how much you love them. God, I pray that you would help that to be the spark that allows them to return to their first love. God, admittedly, if, if we don't get this right, 
that we have no chance of getting it right with others. Those we're close to, those we're the same as, and those that we're wildly different and that our propensity would be to have divisions with. Father, I pray that we would love you and that you would allow that to lead to us loving other people, even those we are so different from. Help us with that. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.